hear me. She was distracted. Okay. Uh, so, um, one of the things I have been trying to do here recently, um, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm a creature of habit. Uh, and because I'm a creature of habit, I, I do things, you know, habitually. Uh, the same way over and over and over again, of course. And, and um, I've been here, golly, in June, it'll be nine years. Um, and in the nine years I've been here, the first few years I would spend, uh, you know, as much as 10 hours a week studying and preparing and uh, working on sermon stuff. Um, and, and over the years that shifted and it's changed in the way I study and the way I ruminate and the way I pray over things and everything adjusts constantly. And, and, um, I, I'm at a, at a really good spot right now as far as how I do my research and how I contemplate. Um, but the one thing that has never changed is that sermon illustrations 99% of the time appear in the two to three minutes preceding when I stand up to talk. Um, and so, like, anytime you hear me and I sound really clever, it's not because I'm really clever. It's because in the last second, something has jumped into my head, and I thought, oh, that fits in with everything in the sermon. I'll just repeat that over and over again. Um, and I, I, uh, I, have, I have been bailed out time and again, and I've tried to come up with illustrations early and inevitably if I come up with something on Monday by Sunday morning either I end up rewriting the entire sermon or I'm sitting there and I realize oh I have a much better idea let's do that instead and every time not every every time but you know like I said 99.9% of the time um, this morning and last week I set out to, to do this different and to come up with something early and, and I have struggled for days uh, and come up with nothing. And I finally said, well, I guess I'm going to talk about this, and I guess I could probably talk about this. And, and I wasn't real happy about it, but I said, I got something in advance, and I'm going to get out of this habit. And then Rebecca got up and began singing. And I had to run downstairs after I printed up the lyrics to, <laughs> truth be told, um, uh, and I'm going to read them to you. Uh, you all sang them a few minutes ago. And I, I don't know that everybody pays attention to lyrics while we sing. Some of us have not adjusted for daylight savings time, and so we show up, like, pretty late, not naming any names. Um, <laughs> but, uh, golly, this song. Uh, line, line number one, you're supposed to have it all together. Uh, and then they ask how you're doing. Just smile and tell them never better. Line number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours. So keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed doors. Truth be told, the truth is rarely told now. I say I'm fine. Yeah, I'm fine. Oh, I'm fine. Hey, I'm fine. But I'm not. I'm broken. And when it's out of control, I say it's under control, but it's not. And you know it. I don't know why it is so hard to admit it. When being honest is the only way to fix it. There is no failure, no fall. There is no sin you don't already know. So let the truth be told. There's a sign on the door that says, come as you are, but I doubt it. Because if we lived like it were true, every Sunday morning pew would be crowded. 
but didn't you say the church should look more like a hospital, a safe place for the sick, the sinner, and the scarred, and the prodigals, like me? Well, truth be told, the truth is rarely told. Well, am I the only one who says, I'm fine, yeah, I'm fine, oh, I'm fine, hey, I'm fine, but I'm not, I'm broken. And so Rebecca picked the sermon illustration this morning uh, and then ducked out early. Uh, (laughs) We're in Job today, uh, but as I was uh, listening to her sing that song, um, a quote from Thoreau jumped into my head. Uh, the mass of men live quiet or live lives of quiet desperation. What is called resignation is confirmed desperation. From the desperate city, you go to the desperate country and have to console yourself with the bravery of minks and muskrats. A stereotype but unconscious despair is concealed even under what we what what are called the games and amusements of mankind. There is no play in them, for this comes after work. But it is a characteristic of wisdom not to do desperate things. Um, Wow, this is starting out cheerful, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, I wanted to do, uh, I mean, we're in Easter, right? It is Easter um, season, and we are working our way up through Easter and uh, we're doing Easter in the Old Testament. Last week we did it in Acts, but the Acts passage was from Isaiah, so that counted. Um, and this week we're going to be in Job. Because as I look at the scriptures and I look at um, the themes that are there and I look at Easter, um, I, I can't, man, this song hits it, right? Like the Old Testament is one day after another where everything was a total mess for everyone, Right. Like I always find it funny when you look at like uh, the Christian bookstores will have like Christian action figures so that your kids, you know, aren't, I don't know, infected by G.I. Joe or whatever. Um, But but they'll have like Samson, you know, and we like to talk about how Samson was really strong, but we don't talk about all the other stuff (laughs) or the David action figure. And he's always like this big, strong guy. But in reality, David was probably a little guy. You know, and again, we don't talk about like him murdering the neighbor after knocking up the neighbor's wife after, you know, dot, 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 dot. Um, the story of the scriptures is over and over again a story of the mess of life, right? It is folks in decay. It is folks struggling. It is folks, you know, dried up and empty at times. Like you read um, Isaiah or Elijah, the story of Elijah and the fireball, right? That is a cool story because the only spot in the scriptures where there's an enormous explosion in which a battle is won and like the bad guys are all wiped out. And five minutes later, Elijah is like crying and saying, I'm the only one left and I'm running for my life. You know, the scriptures are tough. And I think it's a part of the reality of the lives we live. And you look at the book of Job and the book of Job is long and difficult. Has anybody sat down and like worked their way through Job? Um, Job is hard, right? Job is the story of a man who is righteous before God, and because he is righteous before God, he ends up subject to a bet where Satan says, if you take everything away from him, he will curse you. And Job, uh, like, and so, well, God says, well, go ahead. And Job, in a matter of like days, his his fortune disappears, his children are all killed, his house burns down, and he ends up sitting in a pile of ashes covered in 
sores because he has leprosy. And all he's able to find is a broken pot, and he's scratching himself with a broken pot. Um, and then his wife shows up because, like, the one thing you really need when life is desperate is your wife to offer you comfort. And she says, curse God and die. <laughs> Thanks, honey. Like, because he's got, shh, Titus. Because he's got nothing else going for him. And then some of his friends come along to cheer him up. And the rest of the book is about his friends telling him, this happened because you're bad. <laughs> right? Like, and it really is them arguing with Job and saying, obviously all this bad stuff is happening because you did something wrong. If you hadn't done something wrong, nothing bad would happen to you. Um, this is a horrible argument, isn't it? By the way, everyone who you hear say, I believe in karma, this is it, right? The scripture doesn't teach karma. Karma is you do bad things, bad things happen to you. You do good things, good things happen to you because only bad things would happen if that was true because we do lots of bad stuff. You can't do enough good to outweigh the sin you commit, right? Like it's just not the way the world works. But these guys are all sitting around arguing with Job, and Job is protesting. And we see the seeds of messianic expectation here. The story of Job um, is old. It is potentially, the written out book is potentially, like it precedes Moses, is what a lot of theologians think. It is potentially the oldest um, written out book in the scriptures. That doesn't mean it happened before the creation and stuff like that, but it does mean that it is an incredibly old book. And it presents a very important idea. It's an important idea that runs throughout the scriptures, and that is that life isn't fair, right? Anybody who tells you something different is probably lying to you, right? That bad things happen because the world is broken. And that God is God even when bad stuff happens, right? So God doesn't cease to be God because I haven't won the lottery yet. God doesn't cease to be God because my hairline is receding or because, like, people die or because, you know, I, I whatever, like, like, because the world isn't perfect. It doesn't mean that God isn't in control. It doesn't mean that God isn't God. And that's not an unpopular idea, right? Like, that's, there's a book, uh, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. It was written by a rabbi, uh, Kushner. The very famous book um, where this rabbi sat down and said, well, what's the deal? Like, why do bad things happen? And his solution in the end is God's not powerful enough to do something about it. Therefore, bad things happen. That's a problem, isn't it? Because if God isn't strong enough to be God, then he's not God. Um, we get into the Job book, and there are, in some places, um, shining moments of hope. Right? Um, and I think this is why Job continues to be one of the greatest pieces of literature of all time, but also is one of the most like profound and difficult books in the scripture is because there's so much difficulty. There's so much, not even quiet desperation, right? Because Job never shuts up about how mad he is. Like, he is, he is mad. Um, and he is frustrated and he is demand. Actually, no, he does shut up about it eventually. He demands God show up so he can plead his case. And then when God does show up, Job shuts up. Right? Like he's, he's all mouth until, you know, until God shows up. 
and then, whoa, sorry. Um, the genre of literature that's, that's used in Job is a trial motif. Um, trial motifs are common in ancient uh, Semitic like, like writings. You find them kind of all over the Middle East, but um, um, you find them throughout the Old Testament, and it's where, like, one person who is the offended demands a day in court and a judgment over a wrong that they've suffered. Oftentimes, it's God. Um, oftentimes, it's God complaining about his people rebelling against him and demanding, like, justice for that, which is a bad deal because God is the one who meets out just, justice, right? Like, you don't want to make that guy mad. Um, but, it's like, so as we dive into this text, like, understand what Job is doing is, is he is demanding his day in court. Everybody's saying, Job, this is happening because you're bad and you committed some sin and God is punishing you. And Job's like... I'm innocent. I didn't do anything wrong. I didn't do anything wrong. God needs to get down here so I can tell him what's what. Um, So we dive in. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. Um, so there are three common ways that people would write in the ancient world. One was on a scroll of one kind of paper or another, right? Uh, these get more and more permanent, right? There's sort of a translation decision. This is the NIV, and I'm going with this one uh, for a reason. Um, but an iron tool on lead would be like a lead book. And there have been examples of this discovered uh in uh, like Mesopotamia and Egypt, these books that were made out of like lead where they would inscribe on them and they were actually like bound books, which is kind of neat. It is possible that this reads a little differently because the way it's translated here, it looks like um, one, the other, and then a third, whereas the second two lines there might be together, right? And instead of actually inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved on a rock forever. It could be engraved on a rock um, with lead. And it was a common practice, right? Like, and this is really a translation decision. Like, if you want to see a fun thing, go and look at this text, which is one of the most insanely difficult passages to translate because some of the wording is really murky and old. And so there's a lot of translation decisions made here. The NIV is a little conservative with this one. Um, It is entirely possible that this refers to the practice of carving words in a rock and then pouring molten lead in them so that they stand out, right? Um, Or it could be an iron tool with lead in it, like a pencil or anyway. Um, But the idea here is I want my case written down so that forever and ever and ever, everyone in the entire world knows what happened to me, right? Or it written in stone so people know I'm innocent. And by the way, that phrasing, oh, that my words were recorded, um, the way that's phrased out, like it is a, like, I really, really wish or from the core of who I am, I want my case presented because I am innocent. Um, again, sitting in a circle of his friends who are all telling him, you're wrong, Job, you screwed up. Um, and he responds, I want it recorded forever that I'm innocent. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand on the earth. My Redeemer lives. 
So the word redeemer doesn't mean what it means today. Okay? Like, I redeem a coupon. Actually, I don't remember the last time I redeemed a coupon. But I might redeem a coupon if Amazon let me do that. Um, I, I might redeem, you know, bottle caps for, for a prize. Or I might go to a pawn shop and redeem something that's in hock uh, by paying for it and getting it back. Um, there are two versions of this word in ancient Hebrew. Watch this. The first one where it begins is like throughout the law books, like in Leviticus and whatnot. Uh, and it's, it's this idea that a thing or a person can be redeemed. Like if somebody murdered my brother as his redeemer, closest male relative, oldest son, right? My job would be to go and kill whoever murdered him or make sure they end up killed by the appropriate authorities, right? Like, but it would be my job to redeem his blood. And actually, we see that usage in the New Testament some. You see it in the book of Revelation when the, uh, underneath the altar, you have the, the saints whose blood were spilled and, you know, as they preached the gospel, and they were calling out for this redemption. Like, that's the same usage. It is, um, you know, I will, you'll answer for his blood, I am his redeemer kind of thing. Now, another way that it's presented is, um, like in the ancient world, you couldn't go to a bank to get money, right? Some of you can't do it now. Um, mostly the children. Uh, I can't because I don't know how to work banks. Um, but, but in the ancient world, you, you really didn't have banks, like especially in Jewish society because you couldn't charge interest, right? And so, like, why would I loan you money if I can't charge interest? And so um, one of the ways that people would get loans is they would sell themselves into slavery for a period of time. It was a very common practice, and it was a way to keep from losing the farm. So, like, um, if Steve was having difficulty with his farm, he might decide to sell Tice, the not oldest son, into slavery for a period of years. Um, And he would get a certain amount of money, and then after the appropriate number of years... Tice would come home and resume working at home, right? Tice could continue to work at home. He could continue to own property. He could actually have people who were his like slaves, right? This is how slavery worked in Israel. Um, And the idea was you kept everyone in Israel. Now, so Steve, if he were to sell Tice into slavery because the farm was in financial difficulty, and then whoever bought Tice decided, I don't like this guy, I'm going to get rid of him, and he sold him to a neighboring nation, then Tice is hosed because he ain't coming back, right? Because nobody else practiced slavery this way. Um, So then he's in a position of real destitution. It would be Callan's job to be his redeemer. The redeemer stands up for him, and pays the price to buy him out of slavery. Pays the price to purchase him back into the family. This is an important idea. When you get into the Psalms and into the prophets, the idea of Redeemer carries this idea, this, I will buy you out of your slavery. I will buy you out of your place where you have died to us as a nation and as a people, where you are like indebted for your sin, where you are indebted for your failure, for your debt, for your shortfall, for your whatever, I will come and I will buy you out of it. Um, and so it goes from being a legal term to a theological term, and then when we get to the New Testament, we encounter the Redeemer, right? 
Because in Christ, we see the Redeemer alive. We see God himself step into his world, into his created place, and redeeming us with the, with the blood, right? Like, like this idea of Redeemer goes from one to the next to the next on purpose. And Job is speaking kind of prophetically here. My Redeemer lives. Who is his Redeemer? His Redeemer is Jesus. Does he know who Jesus is? Absolutely not. Right? Absolutely not. In no way does he know who Jesus is. Um, but he knows that he will stand on the earth. And so he did. And so he will again. Right? After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. There are two ways this could be translated. That way. Um, or actually, let me finish the verse before I explain this. Um, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So like the idea here, by the way, is after I die, I'm still in my flesh going to see God. Right? Like, ancient Jews, like in the first century, believed in the resurrection. They believed in the end of time there would be a physical resurrection of all people. We are not going to show up again as disembodied spirits on clouds, right, with harps, singing along forever, naked, like in the Renaissance paintings. None of that is scriptural. Sorry. Um, And actually, angels don't look like babies. They look big and scary and a bunch of other stuff. But I digress. Um, he believes that even after he dies, and Job thinks his death is imminent, right? Like Job is, mind you, sitting in ashes with leprosy. Leprosy in the ancient world, there was no cure. People would not stand near you. You had to go live in leper colonies with other people who were dying, and very slowly your extremities, fingers and toes, would begin to rot away, and they would fall off, and you would very slowly, painfully, and alone die. Right? So Job is dying. And everyone's telling him it's his fault. Um, <laughs> which actually, I don't know, I've worked in church long enough to know this maybe isn't that unreasonable of an idea that folks would do this. Um, yet in my flesh I will see God. So Job says, listen, I am dying. My skin is being destroyed as I speak. But I will be remade and I will see God. I won't be a shade. I won't be a disembodied spirit. I will see my Redeemer who is alive. I will see him stand on this earth. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another. How many heart, how my heart yearns within me. Um, That I am not another could also be translated as um, I will see my God I will not see anyone else, right? Because only God will redeem him. Um, And that is the end of my Job reading. Um, But we're going to jump forward here to Matthew. Um, I'm using this passage a little sideways from its original intent. I'm going to own that. You can look it up and read it. It doesn't change what Jesus says right here, okay? In the original, Jesus tells a bunch of parables, and a bunch of people don't understand it. And he says, listen, they'll be ever seeing but never perceiving, ever hearing but never understanding. They see, they see the Messiah, and they don't know it. 
but you guys get it. He's talking to his disciples, right? And he says, but blessed are you because they see and your ears because they hear, or excuse me, blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly, and this is the important part, for truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. I'll jump back here. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes and not another. How my heart yearns within me. Um, I'm willing to bet most of us have been in Job's spot. Right? I'm going to read it again. Not the whole thing this time. Um, Lie number one, you're supposed to have it all together. When they ask how you're doing, just smile and tell them never better. Lie number two, everybody's life is perfect except yours, so keep your messes and your wounds and your secrets safe with you behind closed door. Truth be told, and the truth is rarely told. I believe most of us have been in Job's spot. The world is just on fire where everything is as broken as it's going to get, where you feel hopeless, where you feel helpless, where you feel like, feel like you're dying. Maybe you are. You yearn to see the Son of God himself. And I assure you, as Job assured us, we will. As we prepare for Easter, as we look at what the Old Testament says over and over and over again, um, God is our Redeemer. And our Redeemer lives. And our Redeemer will come. He came for the children of Israel as they sat in slavery in Egypt, Right? Um, I was going to have Rebecca sing uh, My Deliverer is Coming um, by Rich Mullins. Listen to it. It fits really well with what we're talking about today Um, because our Deliverer is coming. I think a lot of us are frustrated right now. We're angry at the world. We're angry at our politics. We're angry at the church. We're angry at our neighbors. We're angry at the government if we're paying attention. We're angry at... Weird diseases that seem to make us all go in separate directions. We're mad at people who don't want to look at it the same way as us. We're mad at, you know, our family. We're mad at our wives. We're mad at our kids. Some of us are mad at ourselves because we can't stop doing dumb things. Um, And I assure you, in this Easter season, we gather and we remember Christ came and he poured out his blood for all of that. For every way you feel break, broken, for every way you feel hopeless, for every way you hide your stuff in quiet desperation and lie saying, I am okay. Christ died for all of that. And actually, he died to glue us together as a family. I, uh, I was talking to another pastor a while ago about counseling and I was saying, well, you know, I do this kind of talking pretty regularly, and I had this conversation a few years ago, and he said, I don't understand why people tell you stuff like that. Like, nobody comes and talks to me. And I said, I am a terrible person, and people are okay talking to terrible people, right? Sometimes the church pretends that we're not sinners. Sometimes the church pretends that we're not broken, that we're not lost, that we don't, you know, screw up, that we don't say horrible things, that we don't do horrible things. 
um, and because we pretend to be that way, because we do what this song says, right? Come as you are, and we pretend that that's what we're really doing. Folks are afraid of us. But I'm here to tell you, because Christ died for our sins, because he took every rotten, nasty, miserable thing you ever thought, said, or did on his back, every horrible, filthy thing that was ever done to you, every bit of imperfection and, and every, every one of all of it, he carried it on his back. He bled and died for that to make you whole, to make you clean, so that when you stand before him, you stand before him redeemed, innocent, made whole and made new, bought out of slavery to your own sin, redeemed from the pit. Praise God for that. And then on Sunday morning, he rose again from the dead, demonstrating us for us with concrete proof that with our own eyes, with our own hands, we would see him and we would touch him. That we'd stand next to Doubting Thomas and be able to put our finger in the hole if we really needed to. That's a messed up passage when you think about it until you realize how scared Thomas was. I know my sin yells crucified louder than the mob did. And I know I'm still forgiven. What I want you guys to know today is it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that you're lost. It doesn't matter that you're broken. It doesn't matter that you're addicted. It doesn't matter that you're a slave to sin. It doesn't matter that you feel diminished and demeaned by the folks around you. It doesn't matter that you feel alone or like nobody would ever, ever, ever be able to understand the place you're in because we're all there and we've all been there. And Christ knows it already. And he's already carried it on his back. And there will be a day when we all stand before him made new. And right now we only get to see it like in a bad mirror, right? Where it doesn't look quite right. The church is supposed to look like that. But right now it only looks like a mess, right? You ever stand in front of one of those funhouse mirrors? They've got them in hotels and in dressing rooms where you buy clothes. And they make you look fatter than you really are. <laughs> um, I mean, for everyone else, it makes me look good. I don't know. But you stand there and you look at it and you think the church isn't supposed to be this way. We're not supposed to be mean to each other. We're not supposed to be judgy. We're not supposed to not care about each other. We're not supposed to ignore each other. We're not supposed to judge each other. We're not supposed to dot, dot, dot. And at the end of the day, the church is that way. But it won't be then. There's hope in all of this. So what do you do with it? Recognize that hopeless and helpless are still forgiven. Sick, dying, body failing, heart struggling, you'll be renewed. And you're already renewed. You're just waiting for it to happen. That Christ stood up and redeemed us from slavery. As the older brother does for the younger brother, I guess, right? Like Cal and Will for Tice eventually, I assume. We are redeemed. What do we do with that? Bring it to the people around us. Because there are neighbors around you. There are people in this building who wake up in the morning and feel worthless, who look at the other moms in the room and say, she's got it all together. Any of y'all ever say that? No, I'm sure you don't. It was really funny. I talked to two women once in a week doing like just 
pastoral work, right? One said, that lady over there has it all together. I can't believe she just has everything nailed down. And I talked to the other lady about a week later, and she pointed back to the first lady and said, my life is such a mess. This person has it all together. And I laughed, and I said, man, I wish I could break confidence because <laughs> you people are nuts. <laughs> but in reality, all of us are this way, right? We look at the pictures of the magazines, and it doesn't matter if they're Photoshop, We don't look good enough. We look at the neighbor's farm, and it, for some reason, his stuff looks better. Um, the reality is, like, everyone around you is living this life. Everyone around you is in that place of quiet desperation. And they're at the bar getting drunk because they're trying to not remember that's what it is. And they're, you know, trying to play their way through life because they're trying to not remember that that's what it is. We carry the only hope for those folks. We see Christ in our lives and in our brothers' and sisters' lives, and our job is to bring it to the folks around us. Um, so you are redeemed. Now share it with the world. Now close in prayer. I know this wasn't a very like lighthearted sermon, but I couldn't think of a better way to do it, honestly. And it's Rebecca's fault because of the song. My original illustration I was going to use was a joke, and it would have been a much different sermon. Um, so blame her. And also it went long because of her. Um, Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be with us. I pray that you would give us your grace and your mercy this morning. I pray that you would help us to remember over and over again that we are redeemed, that our debt has been paid in full, that, that our sin has been washed away, that, that though our sins are like scarlet, they've been made as white as the snow. And, and though we feel lost in the pit, Christ redeemed us from it. And I pray for your mercy on us. Um, help us this Easter season. Just remember over and over again the price that Christ paid for us and the resurrection that's coming at the end of time. That our loved ones, our brothers, our sisters, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, the heroes of the faith, that we will stand with them and worship you one day um, on this earth renewed. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Have a good day, guys.